Hello fellow workers, this is Aaron Dunn, and that phrase will make sense here in a few minutes. Thank you for listening to the Strong Calm Podcast. Calm, C-O-M, is the root word that stands for together or in common, and I believe strong communication creates strong communities, and strong communication and community builds strong company, being that a business or a com- the company you keep. So, strong comp. Yeah, today we're going to talk about strong communication and community building as that relates to soapbox speaking. Like, get off your soapbox or that guy's on a soapbox. I remember when I was a kid, the first time that I learned the background of that phrase and I said, Mom, what does that mean? And mom told me that soapbox, that that phrase originated from when people would grab a soapbox, a crate, some type of old wooden something to elevate themselves and speak in front of a crowd. So I was like, oh, okay, thanks. And um, didn't really think much of it, but I believe that it could have planted a seed for me now, considering that Um, I do public speaking and spoken word poetry. I always like thinking about that type of thing. Like, hmm, what kind of influence did that have on me uh, in retrospect? But anyway, I was thinking about that the other day for some reason. And I was like, I've never really explored that in a deeper way. I've never explored the history and the origins of that term and soapbox speaking and where that really originated from. So I figured it would be a fun podcast. Uh, It would be a fun subject for the podcast. So in this episode, I'm going to give you the abridged version of what I read and what I found out in, uh, you know, doing some research on my own about the origins of the uh, of soapbox speaking and then give you some uh, you know, some tips and tricks, some things that I learned and, um, just, uh, so, so we'll do like an origin thing. We'll do kind of where I see soapbox speaking happening now in our world and some things to think about if you are wanting to create a soapbox speech yourself or how it applies to us today. So, um, first let's kick off this origins thing. So, here we go. Oh, before I before I get into that, I do want to provide a, a good source for those that are really interested in diving deeper. And um, I'm pulling a lot of the quotes from this journal article I found on JSTOR.org. It is called Mounting the Soapbox, Poetics, Rhetoric, and Labor Lore at the Scene of Speaking by Thomas U. Walker. It was found in Western Folklore, Volume 65, Number 1 Half, Lessons of Work, Contemporary Explorations of Work Culture, Winter, Spring 2006, pages 65 through 98. That's a full citation for your podcast today. I don't, uh, yeah. So uh, for those interested, um, I, I've got a lot of value out of it. It was pretty interesting. So, but here are some standout things that I learned from that and another article online um, called The Battle of Soapbox Row. If you just Google that, you'll probably find what I'm, what I'm talking about. So um, let's kick it off with this quote. So let's kick it off with this quote. 
Soapbox oratory is simply, but not merely, the practice of impromptu and extemporaneous public speaking. It made use of anything expedient, a soap crate, a curbstone, or stepladder, from which to orate and as a means to elevate the speaker above the audience. Podcast over, mic drop. That is the definition of soapbox oratory. And pretty much what my mom told me, you know, when I first inquired about what that meant. And I really want to point out, um, I want to point out the simply but not merely facet of that definition because soapbox oratory, what we're going to learn here is that it often had way more to do with what the community was feeling at the time and meant a lot more to the people that were there in the space. So it was less about the orator themselves and way more about why that person was motivated to speak out. And that motivation, that tip of the spear, that, that, that speaker was really just evidence of a greater, broader feeling and that person was articulating that. So um, that's really soapbox and in a lot of ways, poetry. Um, and we're going to get into, you know, the crossover uh, of applications and where we could see soapbox speaking now because it's kind of died out. Nobody's really, you know, using soapbox, but it, it definitely, definitely happens when you think about it um, in these ways. So imagine with me back in the days of black and white photos uh, of ni- the days of 1900 to 1910-ish. So not the Great Depression during the 1930s, not the Roaring Twenties, whatever that looked like, but the 1900s. And I'm no historian, but that's, you know, it's the turn of the century and America is in the midst of pretty much the Industrial Revolution and industry's booming. People are working in huge factories that, you know, uh, have been developed and, you know, America is really blossoming all over the country. Um, lots of, you know, immigrants coming in, lots of people coming in and populating, uh, populating the, the countryside. And, you know, there's in, you know, pockets of industry happening because of different, uh, innovations in technology. So, if it's the you know mining industry, um, fishers, uh, lumber camps, um, you know manufacturing in the in, in factories, that kind of thing, steel, um, all kinds of uh, different things happening all across the country, and these that this is the setting, that's the context. Soapboxing has its origins in America. Uh, its American origins largely in the working class of America and was popularized through labor unions like the International Workers of the World, IWW, in the early 1900s. So, you know, in these days, public speaking is like a career. People do it all the time. People do it you know, artistically and, you know, people are known as great speakers. And that was certainly the case back then. But, you know, when I think about get off your soapbox, um, a lot of times, you know, I think about how people are speaking. And of course, as an artist myself, I think about the artistry of uh, public speaking. But soapbox, soapbox is really rooted in the regular 
middle class, if you will, worker, the just the regular Joe, the person that is going to work every day. It's not an artistic effort. Public speaking wasn't necessarily a career while there was, you know, politicians and, and, and people doing that. It's really the soapbox is a worker's platform. Um, it was an act of individual right and often an appeal for organized um, rebellion, essentially. The labor unions often spoke out against the concentration of power and wealth in these different industries. The soapbox was usually found at the gates of the factory, in different areas of the mining town, within the mines itself, at the lumber camp, the fisherman pier, the public square in general, as a platform for venting frustration of the working class because there was concentrated wealth within these industries because of different technological revolutions and the capitalization of opportunity within America for a select few. So those in power were staying in power and then those working were feeling they were missing out a little bit and were being overworked and underpaid. And, you know, you can probably already imagine the parallels that we hear now, especially in context of 2019. And we've got um, politicians coming out and talking about the wealthy one percent and um you know the message that resonates a lot now with you know concentration of power and redistribution of wealth that was the subject in the turn of the century 1900 um soapboxers soapboxers often began and ended their speeches with fellow workers which is what i thought it would be fun to start this podcast with so fellow workers and they would appeal to those passing by, maybe, you know, it's five o'clock or wherever time they, they clocked out, they would, they would say, you know what, I'm done with this. They would grab whatever they could, elevate themselves in front uh, of, of their crowd or their coworkers or in the public square and address the public. There were no cell phones, you know, mass communicate. This was what mass communication looked like. Uh, back then. Of course, there were journals and papers and and things like that, periodicals that would uh, in print media. But this was the fastest way to address those people within your community was just to elevate yourself with whatever you could and start speaking. Over time, the IWW organized to such a degree that cities would create ordinances against soapboxing, which led to what has been known as the free speech fright in San Diego or the battle for soapbox row. You should check that out if you're interested. So IWW was a huge organization at this point, you know, um, back, back then, and it was organized to give voice to these industrialized workers and, soapboxing started to become kind of a a habit like it would be known that you could go to soapbox row this kind of area in town and hear somebody speaking out against their employers pretty much um and advocating for better organization the iww if you read up on them they were always in a 
they're always looking for different ways to disrupt the current system and either organize some sort of rebellion, like nonviolent rebellion, but essentially just disrupt the status quo enough to get more attention for their cause, but also to create pressure on the powers that be to lobby and get what they wanted. So back, so the, the battle for Soapbox Row it turned into a battle because the people in power in this uh, San Diego community at the time uh, created ordinances and other in other areas of, you know, uh, where the IWW was really speaking out um, the most would create ordinances and say, OK, uh, those people that are speaking uh, in this area can't speak anymore. And. They did it for for two reasons, you know. As city officials, city officials would say, you know, they're they're blocking traffic and that kind of stuff. But you know, there was also motivations that hey, these people keep speaking out, and it could sabotage, you know, the the good system we got going on right now. So there's a lot of you know drama in that and politics in that and uh, different motivations, of course. But um, the Soapboxers, or the IWW was often called Wobblies. Uh, that's what they went by. The Wobblies would say that you're infringing on my free speech. And, you know, it became the free speech fight instead of just, you know, hey, uh, you're, you're taking too much money and not giving it back to the workers who are make, you know, making the opportunity to make a lot of money. Um, you're not Uh, it it isn't fair. They're speaking out and they're advocating for like a socialist, more socialist, uh, uh, government. Um, they, they use that, those, those ordinances as ways to gain more attention by saying, Hey, you're infringing on my free speech rights. Now I can't even speak out because of what you've got going on. And they would elevate their fight and do this organized kind of rebellion. The IWW had, had papers and, and, and stuff. So once something happened where, you know, this would happen in a single community, they would spread the word and say, Hey, we need thousands of people to go to this area and do it anyway. And they would, at, at, at this particular juncture and in different areas too, would arrest 40, 50, hundreds of people within a day because they would just get on top of a soapbox and start speaking out about what they were doing. Uh, the labor unions eventually advocated for a flood of people to get to these different areas and uh, people died and a lot of people got jailed. It was crazy. So pretty interesting uh, different stories and, and showcases the power of organized speech and and the the common the voice of the the common worker. Um, so, you know, that's really what the origins of soapboxing were. It was in the in the common man and those people that were that were um, speaking out against um, what they, you know, speaking for what they believed in and speaking against um, an organized organized power. So however you feel about that, you know, politically or what have you, if they're right or wrong. And, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, that debate of, is uh, as old as time. But I thought that was pretty interesting that, you know, it wasn't it's not an art artistic endeavor. Um, but soapboxing, 
because it was effective, obviously, in you know creating the um, environments that the IWW wanted to see, the Wobblies wanted to see, and you know uh, to to build credibility to their cause and and advance their cause. Um, there were certain people that were more talented than others. There were you know, talented soapboxers where they, you know, people would want to, you know, tune in and listen, uh, or attend these, these speeches and listen. But it was funny because anybody could be a soapboxer at any time, as long as you identified with the community and, you know, advocated for the same thing, the act of soapboxing was more important than the soapboxer itself because it became a moment. If you think about it in today's terms, it's sort of like a hashtag works on Twitter today where you've got people. It it doesn't necessarily matter if you have a huge following or not, but you use the hashtag and your voice to, to, Add to the broader viral conversation that's happening and all of a sudden people are talking about how many retweets something has and what's trending and what's not. Um, essentially, this is the same thing. It's just a, you know, the the antique version of it the, uh, that was happening in, in 1900 to 1910. Um, they say history repeats and I suppose this is a, another example. So um, that's really the history of Soapboxing and uh, with a little bit more color than maybe your mom gave you. And, um, you know, definitely visit those different um, sources that I uh, started off uh, with if you're interested in learning more. It's pretty interesting, uh, especially that journal article. It had a lot of context and some examples. Um, actually, I'm going to go ahead and share an example of a story uh, that would be found on a soapbox. So here we go. If you want to. So I'm gonna read this straight from like page 79 of that that journal article. Um, IWW speakers distinguished themselves as talented speakers through humor and storytelling. They not only developed a body of narrative lore, but they also used the soapbox to report on daily labor activities and carry the impetus of the free speech fight. Thompson narrates one popular fable about a cormorant, which is a bird with a large bill for catching a fish. A pelican, essentially, uh, that became traditional among IWW orators. In the story, which dates to about 1900 in a pamphlet by Gaylord Wilshire, these birds are employed by fishermen to do their work. They are tethered and yoked with cord and ring to prevent them from swallowing their catch. The narrative relates that they stage a series of strikes and how wage increases are traded at each negotiation for less autonomy. At one point in the deliberations, a wobbly cormorant gets up to say that the ring and cord system ought to be abolished altogether, and that the cormorants didn't have to deal with the fishermen at all, but the union leaders balk, saying, we must not attack the basic social system in which we all live. They settle for another round of wage increases. So essentially the story is an allegory for the, you know, the the pelican is essentially the union worker who is being used by the, you know, the the labor force and is not, is not getting, you know, their fair, their fair shake. So they 
soapbox, the pelican, you know, soapboxes, and um, enters in a negotiation with the labor force that they're you know, rebelling against. But instead of getting much further, they just get a round of wage increases and changes in how things work. And then they try to upend the system entirely. And that's essentially a allegory for exactly what the IWW advocated for all along. So hopefully you have a good sense of the history of soapboxing at this point, at least uh, more, uh, you know, uh, a, a bit more enriched uh, on the subject. Let's get into a little bit of um, some 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 more meat on, you know, communication in general, some insight on uh, some things that the uh, that were shared in this journal article and where we could possibly see this in our lives today. Okay, so we've got a better understanding of the origins of soapbox speaking, the history, and where it comes from. So for the second half of this episode, I wanted to focus a bit on, you know, my personal insights of soapbox speaking, where I see it happening in 2019, essentially. It's a little different, but also um, give some practical tips to help you strengthen your communication style, strengthen your community, and give you some practical advice on how to you know move forward with this history in mind and how you can perhaps recreate the momentum um, in your you know however you see fit you know in your uh, in your efforts. So first, uh, let's talk a little bit about direct and direct action and political action because the IWW, the Wobblies, the the labor union, um, they had like two methods of spreading their message essentially or, and they were always fighting internally. And I know we're kind of getting back into the history, but it's important. Um, so direct action meaning um, direct action meaning strikes, propaganda, boycotts, um, these, you know, sp- these type of things, um, but also political action, which was really upending the system from the inside and, you know, maneuvering the political systems in these different areas and advocating for different ideas um, within the capitalist framework, regardless of, you know, where you sit on whatever side of the aisle these type of actions should be considered when you're building your community. And this is really kind of what upended the IWW. There's always these, you know, they're always pulling on these two different ways of which would be better and more effective. And I I guess it, you know, takes a little bit of both, but strikes, propaganda and boycotts that can be, you know, uh, that can also lend you not to be a credible uh, organization. So um, take that with a grain of salt, but uh, I want to read this paragraph because it's really good from um, from from the journal, uh, and this this particular person that it's referring to has three models of communication, uh, three models of um, yeah, three models of communication um, for us to really learn quite a bit from um, in a public speaking sense, or just how to organize. 
your messaging. So this guy named August Clausens was a member of the Socialist Party, and Clausens was critical of the efficacy and talk of direct action. Um, agitation and direct action needed the tempering of a programmatic political philosophy and disciplined plan of action. And for him, humor and anecdote needed to be reinforced by exposition of the socialist program for reform and the work of selling and distributing socialist literature. So in his opinion, yes, direct action is great holding these kind of events that, 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 that demand kind of a reaction were, were great, but he wanted to proliferate the ideas that he was advocating for. And for him it was socialism, but he wanted to distribute and sell this socialist literature uh, and and form it into a philosophy of thinking so that uh, they could work it into a work it into public life, work it into the framework for how things were done. So that was kind of his his opinion, and he would put out this this literature. And in these three different models, which, um, you know, if you're taking notes, this is a good this is a good time to do it. These three different models to keep in mind when you're trying to communicate an idea. And these are from August Clausens, which I thought were pretty cool. The causal model. And, you know, it's it's kind of like, duh. But if you think about creating a message with this in mind beforehand, instead of trying to do it without. Uh, do it, you know, post, um, it's a little bit easier to, to frame it and, and really create a story, um, out of these models. So the causal model problem is discussed in terms of causes and effects and concluded with a remedy and an appeal problem is discussed in terms of causes and effects and concluded with a remedy and appeal. You know, because this happened, this happened. We don't want that to happen, so we should do this. Are you ready? It's essentially what the causal model is. Uh, then there's the dialectical model. Argument, contrary argument, and points of agreement. This is, this is one way of doing things. This is their way of doing things. But I think we can agree on this way of doing things. Something like that. The dialectical model. So uh, addressing uh, both sides and then coming to an agreement, likely, you know, that's more in line with your argument. Um, And then the obligatory model. The soapboxer asks what should be the case, why it is not the case, and what must be done. And this is really, you know, a case in point for soapboxing, I think. If you really imagine the expediency of somebody grabbing a crate, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're frustrated, tired of this, and, you know, the excitement of, a, of, of that atmosphere. And then the soapboxer gets on their, their stand and says, you know, what do we want? This. When do we want it? Now, you know, that whole that whole refrain uh, and then why it's not the case pointing to, you know, the problem and saying this is, you know, their fault, essentially, or um, the reason being is because of this uh, structure or what have you. And this is what we must do. This is, you know, these three models, causal, dialectical and obligatory, I think, I mean, if you think about 
political speeches now, it's essentially the same thing. And of course, it's public speaking in general. And this is just good to know uh, information if you're a public speaker. But, um, you know, creating messages within this framework or thinking about what is the most effective uh, model? What is the most effective way? What model would be the best way of communicating the idea that I want to communicate and then going through these three models. So I just thought, you know, it was interesting and uh, definitely something I wanted to include in here. So August Clausen's the causal model, dialectical model, and obligatory model. All right, here's a couple quotes from the, um, from the journal too that I, I just thought were great. He just illustrates these points just extremely well and hopefully you can find a way to apply it. Um, one quote is, I view soapbox rhetoric as a kind of toolbox of discourse strategies that take into account exigencies of local situations. Exigencies is a big fancy plural form of exigent or for, which means for pressing or demanding. So these pressing demanding times uh, soapbox rhetoric is a toolbox of discourse strategies that takes into account these pressing or demanding times of local situations. So if you think about, you know, viral moments, if you think about, you know, the subjects that are um, really hot at the moment. So at the moment, you know, it's February 2nd and I'm recording this, the wall or the government shutdown, you know, in politics, that's definitely something that's happening. It takes into account these local situations. So anything that is served up in that package, in that, in that, in that look, uh, it's going to create some sort of reaction and resonate with the community. Uh, if you want to step out of politics for a second, you think about Super Bowl happens tomorrow. So, um, Everything for the next week is going to be about the Super Bowl or the Super Bowl commercials for this whole next week. So anything that fits in that package, essentially, um, is going to get a little bit more attention because it's uh, the local. It's this pressing or demanding local localized moment. Maybe not local in physical term, but local in uh, in, in in thought process. So it's it's expedient. It's that that nature of. Um, that nature and need for quick communication and action within these local contexts. So, second quote. The soapboxer, in a sense, was a catalyst of communities and local networks of political power, even if temporary and expedient. While it appears that speakers have broad powers to articulate the interests of the crowd, even to exploit and give voice to their fears, the creation and power of this informal institution was dialectical. The successful speaker, empowered by the receptivity of the audience, gauged and managed the incipient power of a crowd through strategies of identification with it and endeavored to enlarge the scene ideologically and poetically often employing labor lore and other local folk traditions and beliefs to that end. That's a Thomas U. Walker quote from the journal. Excellent synopsis of what the soapboxer was in the context of the community. Truly the tip of the spear for the belief and uh, common, uh, the common beliefs of 
where they were from and where these this voice was echoing out of the labor law, you know, the labor industry. But this also applies to, you know, poetry today uh, as a slam poet. If you've ever seen if you've ever been to a slam, it's a competition where poets go up one after another and address the crowd with, you know, their piece and certain members of the crowd chosen at random add a numerical value to their performance and how it resonated with the audience. And this essentially is the exact same thing. A slam poet wants to identify with the crowd and create this, this energy within the crowd to enlarge what they're saying. And of course put points on the board, but also, you know, from an artistic sense, you know, just, identify with a group of people and, um, you know, lend voice to their fears or, um, you know, lend voice to their, their own beliefs. So the soapboxer is essentially, you know, is, is definitely doing the same thing. We can also see applications of this in, in politics and, um, you know, uh, that that's essentially what happens, you know, within a campaign, uh, you know, campaigns are all about identification with the audience and, and an endeavor to enlarge the scene ideologically and be associated um, with that, you know, that community. So I think that's just an excellent quote and um, definitely something that I wanted to share. It's just uh, Jane is shaking it all off right now. So, so I think a modern example of this that comes to mind, um, you know, it's February 2nd. This moment kind of has came and went in a way, but the MAGA hat kids and the Omaha elder Nathan Phillips. So Nick Sandman with the MAGA hat and the the Omaha elder Nathan Phillips, this protest standoff, essentially. There's a lot, you know, it's a whole nother podcast episode to break down exactly what happened with all this. And there's a lot of, you know, different ways you could take it. But at the at the end of the day, you think about the expediency of soapbox speaking, uh, talking about the uh, want or desire to enlarge the scene ideologically and poetically. And the 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 successful speaker is empowered by the receptivity of the audience gauged and managed the incipient power of a crowd through strategies of identification. That moment is a sin, you know, it's, it's a case in point that definition or that moment exemplifies that entire definition. And, you know, the, the great irony is neither of them spoke throughout that video. The Nathan Phillips, the elder, was you know doing a chant or what have you but and and nick sandman you could say had make america great again on his head but that's all you needed to know uh and it told you everything so these this is a soapbox moment happening in real time because it wasn't pre-planned it just kind of happened um as a as a catalyst of communities and local networks of political power uh, it was temporary. It was expedient, but it was um, the it, it was definitely a soapbox moment, and those two were soapbox speakers. So I just wanted to highlight that. 
Okay, and to close this episode, I wanted to share three things to keep in mind as you, uh, you know, brainstorm your soapbox speech to strengthen your community or build your movement um, to, to drive your point home. You have those three models that I shared earlier, but here are three other things to keep in mind to help you brand a little bit more poetically. And those would be number one, the belief. What is the core motivation? What is the thing that you are advocating for? What is your ideal scenario? What is your vision? Really understand what you believe in and keep that in mind all the way through as you structure. So what's that foundational point? What is that big thing? What is that astronomical goal you're pointing people toward? Really affirm your belief. Number two is Identity. So you've got your belief. What is the identity of the people that have that belief? And if somebody were to share the belief that you have, what does what does that make them look like? How do they identify before believing what you believe and after believing what you believe? What is your unique value proposition? What is the personality of your belief system? Uh, what is that message that you're spreading? What sets you apart? What are, what, what is that cool factor? What is that thing that makes you significantly different than other people who might be espousing a belief that is similar to yours? It is this thing. It is the identity that will help your cause become multiplied and spread to a wider audience because... Other people will see it and say, I am like that person or I am I am like that. And then it leads them into that belief. Um, it'll also help other people share what you're talking about because they'll be able to identify others who might believe the same way. And number three, leadership. What do you want to have people do once they um, understand what you're Espousing once they say, yes, I believe the same and this is who I am, they identify with your cause. What happens then? What's the application? What are you leading them? What actions follow this belief system? What actions follow uh, for somebody who identifies with what you believe in? These are things to keep in mind. Seth Godin possibly said this, uh, definitely said this uh, more succinctly. Uh, he's a master marketer. He says, people like us do things like this. So think about your messaging in terms of that. So people like us do things like this. And for your community that you are building, think about us. Think about that us, that rhetorical us. Who who are who is your us? <laughs> Which is making this very confusing. But think about, you know, Think about it in that way. Think about it in terms of belief, identity, and leadership. And hopefully, uh, it'll help strengthen your communication to your community and help you build better company, either in business or the company you keep. And yeah, that's essentially all I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening to the Strong Calm Podcast. I hope you feel empowered to grab a soapbox and address your fellow workers now. Um, give me a follow at Aaron Dunn Works on Instagram or Twitter. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you might find it. Tell a friend about it. That is appreciated as well. Give me a shout out in the DM or on a comment or what have you. Love to speak with you about future episodes and what have you. Um, It's all about strong calm around here and staying driven. And I hope you do both. So, awesome. Have a good day.